Okay, it's um, great to see you. Ooh, there we go. Um, thanks so much. Um, I wish Ruth could be here. We feel an amazing debt to you guys, and I'm not going to be able to quite articulate that, but um, we're just this quirky little English family, and you've extended such a warm welcome to us and made us feel like brothers and sisters when we were far from home. And um, there'll always be a part of us that's here in Grand Rapids even when we go back in January. And uh, Rod, wherever you are, all that stuff's coming straight back at you, mate. Um, All right. Uh, Let's pray together as we open God's word. Great God in heaven, we don't come to you praying that you would uh, uh, help us in our reception of what you have for us in scripture just as some kind of idle formality we are just sheep and you are the shepherd and we need you to lead us we are not uh, capable of uh, discerning our own spiritual good Uh, we often stray and we need you to uh, shape us and lead us and guide us and feed us and um, we just pray uh, humbly asking Uh, that that might be your ministry among us this morning. Prepare each heart uh, that we might hear uh, the words of our shepherd um, and that we might know his voice and follow him, that we might be led on to usefulness in your kingdom and and away from danger. God, would you please help us just to uh, be the people you want us to be through the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, as Christians, I want us to think this morning about the fact that uh, we face the world with the conviction that there is hope. We believe that our lives have a purpose, don't we? And we believe that there's a reason to get up every day. And why do we believe that? Well, ultimately, we believe that because we're convinced that God exists. We're convinced that he made us. And actually, whatever the circumstances of our birth or our upbringing, whatever they might be, we believe that he deliberately intended our existence and that his heart's desire for each one of us here and actually every single person on the face of this earth is that we should know him and that we should love him. And so we believe that our lives really matter. We believe that the choices that we make are profoundly significant. We believe that though all of us are sinners, uh, though all of us naturally puts the crown of our lives on our own heads, uh, and we worship other things instead of God, we believe that God has reached out towards us with mercy. We believe that we can be forgiven. That every wrong thing that we ever did, that every burden of guilt that we carry, Uh, That every neglectful, just blasé way that we've treated God's world with such contempt uh, that it can be washed away. We believe that we can be restored, uh, restored to the role that God made us for, uh, to declare the truth about his goodness and kindness to a watching world. We believe that uh, even when life seems to be caving in around us, God is still in control. And that he's working in all things for our good to make us more like Jesus day by day. We have hope. But not everyone sees the world this way. 
And as we start our message this morning and as we turned our minds to thoughts of church planting and uh, the opportunities for ministry that God has put in front of us as a body here at Crossroads, uh, I want us to kind of bring that reality into sharp focus. Not everyone in the world shares this hope that we have. Many, too many, uh, sadly have never even heard about it. And many others are being actively encouraged to believe that it's nothing better than a myth. Broadly speaking, that's the situation that Peter and I and the rest of the Trinity team are going to find ourselves facing in Oxford. Uh, In 1995, the uh, professor for the public understanding of science at Oxford University, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, wrote this. He said, the universe we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Just think about that for a minute. Think what it would do to you to actually believe that. Think what it must be like to head out into life with the realisation that there is no reason and no meaning for any of it. Think what it does even to simple things like the way that we attempt to encourage each other. You know, we mouth phrases like, it'll be all right, everything will work out for the best. But if Richard Dawkins is right, there's no reason at all for believing that things will work out for the best. There isn't even any reason for believing that there is a best. All we're left to offer one another is just empty air. And the only benefit we get from it is a kind of sick anesthesia against the reality that nothing that we do and nothing that we feel has any ultimate significance at all. Now I'm far from believing that every person who lives in Oxford is a fully paid up Richard Dawkins fan. I think many people in the sciences especially are uh, frankly a bit embarrassed by the way that the professor uh, a charge with popularising science on their behalf plays fast and loose with the scientific evidence to draw his atheistic conclusions. Uh, but sadly, there is a certain realism uh, to the place that he comes out in the end. Whether people accept his logic or not, the truth is all roads that lead away from the God who made us end up in this cruel, cold, hopeless place in the end. And these are the roads that dominate the map of Oxford today. Now, I don't know how uh, many of us feel that we can immediately relate to that and can immediately picture that. Uh, Some of us, sadly, don't have to picture it at all uh, because some of us are living in that world already. Many of us who have have, uh, friends who are immersed in it, some of us I know have children who have bought into it. Others of us, uh, maybe not so much, though. But what I hope we will all realise, especially having spent the last couple of months working our way through 1 Corinthians together, is that this kind of situation was not unfamiliar to the Christians that we read about in the New Testament. Uh, Paul's missionary journeys actually took him to city after city where hopelessness was the order of the day. And that, I think, gives us grounds for hope when we confront the rising tide of hopelessness in our world. It's not true to say that faith can only survive and thrive in a society where most people know their Bibles and go to a Christian school and accept the basic tenets of Christianity. 
Christianity was born in cities like Oxford. And our text today is going to give us a glimpse into how that actually happened. See, our text today is going to take us to one of the great cultural and trading crossroads of the ancient world, uh, the city of Ephesus. And it's going to introduce us to a Christian doing ministry there, Paul's son in the faith, Timothy. And what I hope we'll see as we study it together this morning is that God has a plan for how Christians should handle themselves in these kinds of situations. With Oxford in mind, uh, for me, it's been a blessing and wow, has it been a wake-up call. Uh, to study this text and pray it through. Uh, But I hope that it will also be a challenge for each of us, um, particularly as we start to imagine now our future as a church all reunited on one campus in the centre of town uh, with a more intentional focus ourselves on church planting and on reaching out into the hopelessness uh, that we see alive and at work in our city as well. So let's stand now for the reading of God's word. Uh, Make sure you've got a copy of the Bible in front of you. Uh, If you don't, raise a hand and I think we'll be able to bring one out to you. Uh, But we're going to look now at these marching orders that God has for us uh, for reaching out with uh, the gospel into the hopeless lives of uh, the society around us. And um, we're going to do it in 2 Timothy. So turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and I'll read the first seven verses of that chapter. 2 Timothy... Uh, Chapter 2, let's start at verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. That's God's word to us this morning. So take a seat and we're going to uh, dive into that together and see what... uh, God has for us here. Okay, so let's begin by just setting this passage in its context somewhat. What we're reading here is a letter um, written by Paul, probably while he was being held uh, under house arrest by the Romans um, sometime in the mid-60s AD, so about 30-35 years after the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, uh, who we first hear about in the book of Acts and chapter 16, when uh, Timothy joins forces with Paul and Silas and Luke, and uh, uh, they uh, go off on what we call the second missionary journey to bring uh, the gospel into Europe, Paul's uh, first uh, opportunity to bring the gospel into Europe. And um, what that means then is that Paul and Timothy had known each other for a long time by the time that this letter was written, maybe 15 or 20 years And uh, from what we can tell, Paul writes it knowing that this is probably going to be the last thing he ever gets the chance to say to Timothy. See, in chapter 4, verse 6, you might want to turn to that, uh, Paul says this to Timothy, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. 
seems to know that the end is just round the corner for him, that uh, uh, martyrdom at the hands of the Romans is actually what awaits. And the content of the letter is materially affected by that. See, there's a directness to it. Uh, There's an urgency that just seems to fit with this whole idea that Paul is taking one last shot now at encouraging and steering this young man into whom he'd poured so much. But what about Timothy himself? Why does he need all this advice? Well, the answer is that Timothy is more than just a friend of Paul's. Uh, Timothy is one of Paul's disciples. Timothy was a man through whom Paul's gospel and Paul's model of ministry was being multiplied in Paul's absence. Even though Paul's in a prison in Rome, Timothy and others like him are out there being mini-Pauls all over the uh, uh, Mediterranean uh, region. You see, right from the very start, Paul had been deliberately investing in Timothy's capabilities as a leader. Uh, On the second missionary journey, you might remember, Paul left Timothy behind in Thessalonica to look after the baby church that they planted there. Big assignment. On the third missionary journey, as uh, the Westsiders have with Dan White last week, um, Paul entrusted Timothy with this incredibly challenging task of uh, representing him and his gospel in Corinth when that church was just completely tearing itself apart uh, and was uh, very hostile to Paul himself. And now finally we find Timothy in Ephesus. seems that Paul sent him there from his prison in Rome uh, and once again it's a super challenging assignment. Uh, those of you who might remember this from our Acts series um, uh, will know that this had Ephesus had become a very hostile place to be a Christian uh, during this uh, phase of Paul's life. Paul tells us that it was a city where a great door had opened for him for effective ministry, but where many people opposed him. Towards the end of his time in the city, Acts tells us that the people uh, rioted against Christianity um, because of the impact that uh, the, the growth of the gospel was having on the, the worship of their local patron goddess Artemis. Before Paul returns to Jerusalem at the end of that journey, uh, he meets the elders of this Ephesian church and warns them in very stern terms about tough times ahead. He says he foresees savage wolves coming in amongst the flock and false teachers rising up from within the church itself to distort the truth. And here in 2 Timothy, we find sadly uh, that those predictions have proved all too accurate. Later on in chapter 2, if you read it uh, later on, you'll find uh, Paul writes about two leaders in the Ephesian church, two guys called Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were teaching the Christians there that the resurrection uh, that we anticipate when our lives come to an end had already happened. Uh, And that uh, what the believers in Ephesus were enjoying in the here and now was the best that they could hope for. And when you look through the letter as a whole, you see it packed with references to this hopeless alternative to the real gospel. Actually, even in the very first verse, Paul drops a big hint about the kind of challenges Timothy's facing. He introduces himself like this, standard stuff, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. But then, he says, in keeping with the promise of life that's in Christ Jesus. Why does he stress the promise of life like that? Well, because he knows that in Ephesus, there are a bunch of people running around who don't see the gospel as a promise of life at all. There were people in Ephesus teaching that Jesus, the Jesus who died on a cross, wasn't really God. There wasn't any point hoping for a physical resurrection. Same thing comes back in chapter 1, verse 10. 
Uh, Paul gets a chance there to flesh out his gospel. Listen to what he chooses to highlight. He says, The grace of God has been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So do you hear the mood music here in this letter? Paul is writing to his friend Timothy, serving in this place where the gospel is being radically undermined. Uh, and hopelessness is breaking out in the church as if it wasn't bad enough in the society all around them. And Paul is encouraging Timothy to take a stand for the gospel in this place. In this place where uh, this destructive kind of distortion of Christianity is uh, blaring out from the temples and uh, where um, uh, destructive ideas about uh, what life is really about was being pushed out from the markets and on the running track and in the academy and Paul has some advice about how to do it how to stand firm what does a believer do in this situation and this is going to be our uh, kind of topic to get our teeth into here this morning so what does that advice look like what does Paul tell us as believers that we need to prioritize well the first verse of our passage I think gives us uh, a great place to start he says you then my son Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul's advice to Timothy here is to be strong. Thanks, Paul. Makes sense at least, doesn't it? You know, you could think of what what Timothy was up against. But it doesn't seem particularly helpful, does it? Uh, Reminds me a bit of a great scene from a movie that I love, which probably makes me a complete saddo. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Kevin Costner with his slightly faux-ish English accent. Um, And... um, uh, there's a scene where Robin Hood and uh, his Moorish companion Azim are marching their way through uh, Sherwood Forest and they get ambushed by Little John and his band of woodsmen who are ultimately going to become the Merry Men. And um, uh, the woodsmen ask them to pay a tax in order to cross this river. And um, uh, Robin obviously is not too keen on that whole idea. Um, Little John and Robin get into a quarterstaff fight when there's, you know, with two great sticks kind of going at each other. Robin gets ditched into the river repeatedly. And finally, he manages to kind of struggle over close enough to Azim to ask for some advice. And he kind of blurts out, any suggestions? And Azim's standing there, hard as nails on the shore. And he says, get up, move faster. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I was hoping maybe you would come in and kill him for me. Um, yeah, thanks a bunch, Azim, and maybe thanks a bunch, Paul, too. You know, be strong. What are we supposed to do with that? We probably didn't need someone with Paul's qualifications to point out that being strong would be helpful in this situation. Uh, but actually, we're not quite doing justice to Paul if we see it that way. Um, turns out that that advice, be strong, uh, isn't a completely new thought in chapter 2, verse 1. He's been talking about it through the letter uh, so far. When we go back into the first bit of chapter 1, uh, Paul reminds Timothy of his own example of being strong in difficult circumstances. Uh, For Paul, uh, being strong in a hopeless, self, a kind of strength-sapping environment, boiled down to not being ashamed. Maybe you see it in chapter 1, verse 12. He tells Timothy, however crazy the gospel might have sounded to the people that Paul was called to reach, however much more appealing it was for them to believe in the mainstream philosophies of the day, it was not a cause for shame because undergirding all of it was the real historical person of Jesus Christ who Paul knew and whom he trusted and whom he'd found trustworthy in his own experience. Same idea comes out in the second part of that first chapter, 
uh, where Paul points us to this guy, Onesiphorus. Uh, he gets commended to Timothy here as a good example of holding on to hope in a hopeless culture. And what is it that makes Onesiphorus stand out? Same thing. He's not ashamed of Paul's chains. And then in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul applies the same thing to Timothy himself. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And I think that's what Paul is referring back to now in this first verse of our chapter. When Paul encourages Timothy to be strong, he's encouraging him to follow in his footsteps and to follow in the footsteps of Onesiphorus in refusing to be apologetic about the gospel. He doesn't want Timothy to be some ghastly kind of brash, rude uh, uh, thorn in the flesh of all the people around him. But he does want him uh, not to feel he's got to protect the gospel, not to feel he's got to kind of conceal its sharp edges in order to make it attractive. Timothy needs to have the confidence to believe it and encourage others to believe it just as it is. For Peter and I, and for the whole Trinity team then, if we're going to be strong and get to grips with the hopelessness of Oxford, uh, the first thing we need to concentrate on is not being ashamed of the gospel or ashamed of other believers who are standing firm for it. People are doubtless going to tell us that the gospel is offensive, that it's exclusive, that it's culturally outdated. People are going to be offended by the way the gospel confronts us with our sin. Uh, the way it uh, tells us that we need God, that we can't do life on our own. People are going to tell us that we're bigoted. In fact, they've already told us that. Uh, people are going to tell us that we misunderstood the message of Jesus. They've already told us that too. But Paul's advice for us and for all of us as we seek to share the good news of Jesus with our neighbours is that we don't need to blush for him. We need to be ready to walk the same path of being abused and misunderstood that Jesus himself walked. But there's more here in this verse than uh, just looking back to Paul's example of strength in chapter 1. Paul also has some advice for Timothy about how to be strong. Uh, and that advice builds on uh, an idea that's also back in chapter 1. I wonder whether you noticed what Paul actually asked Timothy to do here. He urges him, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Now, I think we just get so familiar with these phrases of Paul that we don't stop to think just how frankly weird they are. Um, you know, this is like me saying to Will, hey, Will, be rich with the money that's in Jesse's bank account. Do you see that? Paul is offering Timothy a direct command, and then he tells him the only way he can keep it is by depending on resources that don't belong to him. Now, I guess if this were the only instance where it happened, you might think, well, maybe Paul's just made a kind of slip of the pen. Um, but the problem with that is that Paul does it repeatedly throughout this letter, throughout the rest of his letters. In fact, all the rest of the Bible writers hit that same note. Uh, just see it here in chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that you possess. So far, so good. Uh, that's a direct command for Timothy to get on and do something right. But where is the power going to come from that will enable him to do it? Verse 7 says, it's from the Spirit of God. Chapter 1, verse 8. Paul urges Timothy to join with him in suffering from the gospel. So far, so good. Another great command about what to do. But once again, the way he's urged to do it is by the power of God. Chapter 1, verse 14. Timothy's urged to, urge to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to him through Paul's ministry. So far, so good. Another great command about what to do. 
And yet Paul then goes on immediately to tell him the only way he can do it is with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in him. And even actually in the text that we read right at the end, did you spot that one? Now reflect on what I'm saying, writes Paul. Fantastic. That's nice and easy. That's a kind of a college assignment, isn't it? Go away and reflect on what I'm saying. Write the essay and you'll get the points. Uh, But actually, uh, Paul says, reflect on what I'm saying for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Now, this may seem just a bit strange to us. Maybe it seems even kind of flat out contradictory. But this is actually one of the key distinguishing features of biblical faith. You see, some faiths uh, place the stress 100% on what we can do. Buddhism, uh, for example, in its purest form is like this. It's all about human effort. Uh, You know, if you have what it takes to walk the eightfold path, uh, you can escape the cycle of birth and rebirth and attain to nirvana. Now, that might all seem a bit esoteric to you, uh, but careerism is just like that, isn't it? If you have what it takes to steadily elevate your seniority from job to job, you can attain to the C-suite. Just Buddhism by another name, isn't it? Other worldviews take the opposite tack. If you're a devotee of the horoscope column in your favorite magazine, uh, you're acknowledging your subservience to powers that are out of your hands. The events of your life are driven and dictated by the stars. There's nothing you can do about it. Hands off the wheel. I'm sorry. That might seem a little bit naive and foolish, but there's lots of nice ways that gets dressed up in more... uh, intellectually credible forms a lot of modern sociological theories are based on exactly the same idea really that we're wholly products of our genes and our social circumstances and there's nothing we can do about it but the bible doesn't subscribe to either of those two positions the bible tells us that we are responsible for our actions and we are subject to the overruling power of god at the same time Now that may seem a paradox, it certainly is. It's not easy to force our minds to hold that line. But despite that, I do want you to know that when you start digging into that paradox, it turns out to be an incredibly credible and well-supported paradox. Much more credible and well-supported than a lot of what purports to be solid ground under under, uh, other ways of uh, living and thinking. But it's also very liberating in practice. You see, by embracing this biblical truth... Paul isn't left just telling Timothy to man up, is he? He doesn't just have to tell him just in his own strength to defy the hopelessness of Ephesus and just go and get on with it. Sure, he doesn't want Timothy just to sit back and wait for things to change. That's the horoscope approach. He wants him to stand up and identify himself with what he knows to be true. He wants Timothy to apply himself to holding firm with the kind of resolve that he would need if he really did have to do it on his own. But Paul knows that when Timothy does set himself to the task as a believer, he's going to find that the strength to do it will actually come flowing out of the resources of Jesus. Paul knows that as Timothy commits himself, God will meet that commitment with everything that Timothy needs to make it a reality. Do you believe that? It really is be rich with the money that's in Jesse's bank account. Sorry, Jesse. Um, only it's not money it's grace and it's not Jesse it's Jesus so do you see here even in this first verse Paul is offering us some really profound insights about the challenge of living and serving as followers of Jesus in places where he isn't known and where he's even ridiculed but that's not all the advice that Paul has for Timothy here 
Uh, Moving on, Paul turns from defence now to offence. And he lays out a plan, not just for standing still, not just for resisting the tide, uh, but for actually advancing the cause of the gospel uh, in places like Oxford and Ephesus and uh, winning people for Christ. Let me read it to you again. He says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, in this section of the text, I think there are two separate components uh, that Paul really wants Timothy to hear. Uh, There's a what and there's a how. Let's start with the what. What was it that Paul believed Timothy needed to share in Ephesus in order to make inroads for the gospel? This is obviously a super important question, isn't it, for Timothy? Uh, Because as we looked at the context, uh, we saw there are lots of alternative gospels floating around that he could choose to teach. Uh, And there was a reason for that variety. See, these guys like Hymenaeus and Philetus weren't teaching the idea that the resurrection had already happened because they had an ambition to be mentioned in the Bible as heretics. These guys were teaching that the resurrection had already happened because they knew they could get an audience for that message in this place. See, in the first century, the people in Ephesus were kind of divided into two major schools of thought about what happened to human beings when they died. One group believed that when you were dead, you were dead. And that was it. The other group believed that when you died, your body was, uh, uh, the prison of your body was left behind and your soul was free to go and enjoy for eternity uh, an immaterial heaven. But both groups were united by their disgust for this whole idea of physical resurrection. So it's easy to see why Hymenaeus and Philetus reframed Christianity the way that they did. In a challenging context, they chose the path of least resistance. But that isn't Paul's advice to Timothy, is it? It's really striking. When Paul thinks about the right way to make an impact for the gospel in a place like Ephesus, he urges Timothy to concentrate on the things that he heard Paul himself say in the presence of many witnesses during their travels together. Think about what that stuff is. These are the very things that so offended the Ephesians that they rioted against Paul when he was there. These are the very things that have now landed Paul in jail in Rome. And yet these are the very things that Paul now encourages Timothy to concentrate on. Now you may wonder sometimes maybe uh, why it is as a church that we try to be, and every week I pray that God will help us to be, faithful to, uh, to what is actually written here in the text of the Bible. You may wonder why, maybe when we handled that text on prophecy in 1 Corinthians, uh, we were so careful to remind ourselves that prophecy has to be weighed against the words of Scripture. Well, here's the reason. The words that the apostles and the other Bible writers recorded here in our Bibles are our marching orders for ministry. We're not supposed to be looking for a message that will strike the path of least resistance in our culture. We're called to speak the very words of God and let God either comfort or confront those who hear them as he chooses. Paul didn't even consider himself free to say whatever came into his head, did he? tells us he was constrained to preach the message that he'd received and history has proven that it's that message that has lasted because it's the power of God's spirit behind it that makes it have an impact how many followers of Hymenaeus and Philetus do you know today anybody going to Hymenaeus Bible Church okay 
We need to hold fast to the message that Jesus himself has taught. So that's the what, but what about the how? How do we move this uh, message of Jesus into the culture around us? Well, this is the part of the text that has become such a rallying cry to me personally. Many of you know this as I think about the call that God has placed on my life to be a pastor. Paul says, And the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Paul's method for meeting the challenging and uh, hopeless uh, situation in this city of Ephesus was training This is actually one of the most striking features of the account of Paul's life that we have in the book of Acts. On his first missionary journey, Paul's approach to sharing the gospel is that of a traveling speaker. He goes from city to city, sharing the gospel, planting churches. And so the impact of his ministry is essentially limited uh, to the places where Paul himself is there to do the speaking. But by the time we reach the third missionary journey, something really interesting has changed. See, on the third missionary journey, Paul plonks himself in a strategic location, Ephesus. And he stays there for the best part of two and a half years, not just preaching, but vigorously training and discipling other gospel workers. In Acts 19, uh, we learn that after teaching on a Sunday, every weekday, he'd be out in this place called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus and uh, leading discussions there about the life and ministry and the importance of the uh, ministry of Jesus. And the men who participated in those discussions reached the whole province of Asia Minor with the gospel during that time. Absolutely incredible. But that's what Paul is now advocating to Timothy, isn't it? Paul wants Timothy to seek out people with a heart for the gospel and a willingness to be equipped and taught how to share it. And he wants Timothy to pour himself into these uh, guys and gals. He wants uh, to re- Timothy to reproduce for them all the great teaching that he'd received from Paul himself. Uh, he wants Timothy to teach the gospel in the classroom. He wants Timothy to model the gospel in his home and in the public square. And once he's satisfied that his trainees are uh, reliable and adequately equipped, uh, he wants Timothy to send them out that the whole region might be impacted with the good news of Jesus. Now, I don't know how many of you have heard of our uh, Crossroads Ministry Training Scheme. In fact, maybe, um, uh, how many of you have actually taken it? Yeah, a few hands floating around. Hi, guys. <laughs> I love you a lot. <laughs> They're the survivors. Um, the um, Ministry Training is our attempt as a church to recreate that lecture hall of tyrannous right here in our little street corner in Grand Rapids. Ministry training is this 14-week course that aims probably very ineptly, but certainly very prayerfully and sincerely, to find people who are willing and equipped uh, uh, to be sent out and then to pour everything, everything we have and that we know as pastors about how to teach this book and how to make it relate to our culture into them, that the gospel uh, ministry of our church might be multiplied Our ministry training class actually, strange as it may seem, owes a lot to a very similar little class that I took almost 20 years ago now when I first graduated from university uh, that I took at a church in London. And I know many people who went through that class who have gone on to lead similar classes in different cities and in different countries. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind here, isn't it? And that's my prayer for the graduates of our Crossroads class. 
and also for those maybe that we're able to train through this new work in Oxford, that God will put us in a position to meet and serve and disciple reliable men and women who will then themselves be in a position to meet and serve and disciple reliable men and women, that the name of Jesus and that his honour might spread, that people might hear this amazing message of hope that we have to share. So where have we got to? Paul urged Timothy to be strong, to refuse to be ashamed for the gospel. And he's pointed him to the resources of Jesus as the source of that strength. Paul has urged Timothy to hold fast to the message that Paul himself taught. And he's pointed him to training as a central priority uh, for bringing that message of hope to a hopeless society. But now finally, Paul offers Timothy a series of three little analogies that capture the characteristics of the kind of person that God wants to use in this work. And we're going to look at each one of those uh, briefly here as we close. First of all, in verses uh, 3 and 4, Paul tells us that the person who wants to be useful in a city like Ephesus needs to be like a soldier. This is actually a really familiar image for Paul. Uh, You'll remember the great armour of God passage in Ephesians 6. You might remember um, the passage that we did recently in 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul reminds his readers that the soldier's worth is pay and so on. Uh, But Paul goes in a really different direction here uh, with the imagery. He's not focused so much on the equipment of the soldier, uh, not focused so much on the rights of the soldier. He's focused on the responsibilities of the soldier. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, writes Paul, but instead he tries to please his commanding officer. The mental picture that Paul has got in mind here is that of a Roman soldier who's been deployed to some remote frontier of the empire. Uh, Soldiers in that time were stationed, uh, kind of living side by side with local people. Um, and there they waited. They kind of kept their weapons sharp. They went through regular military drill um, in case some kind of local rebellion should bubble up or some extremely ill-advised barbarian should decide to launch a, uh, an attempt uh, at an invasion. And so you can imagine uh, that there was quite a bit of waiting around actually involved in being a Roman soldier. It wasn't all like the Gladiator movie. Um, and all that waiting around created the opportunity for soldiers to get distracted In fact, many Roman soldiers used those long tours of duty to settle right down. Uh, They met and informally married local women. Uh, Soldiers bought land and uh, established farms and uh, got themselves slaves to help them. Many of them returned to these homes from home, actually, when they were decommissioned and became the kind of de facto local aristocracy. But that isn't how Paul wants Timothy to live, is it? Paul thinks that being an effective Christian in a place like Ephesus requires complete focus on the task in hand. Paul wants Timothy to remember that he's there for a reason. It may not be obvious to everyone around him, but Timothy is in a place of acute spiritual need. And Paul wants him to keep his eye on that need. Paul sees the danger that Timothy will just gradually slide into a lifestyle that's shaped less by the urgency of the gospel and more by the privileges and the priorities of the culture around him. And Paul urges Timothy to resist that danger if he's going to maintain his effectiveness. Keep your eye on your commanding officer, says Paul. Think always how Jesus would see the world around you uh, and how he would have you respond to it. I think that advice goes just as well for us, doesn't it? 
whether we're involved in a work like this new church in Oxford or whether we're seeking to be effective uh, in the many ministry opportunities that God has put around us here, we need to look at ourselves and just kind of keep a mental check, don't we, on how we're doing. Year over year, are we becoming less and less distinctive? Becoming more and more invested in just the norms and the priorities and the privileges of the society around us? Could we be convicted in a court of law of actually being people who are set apart for the cause of the gospel? Or are we living like soldiers who know that we've been stationed where we are for a reason? Uh, Living like people who have their eyes fixed on their commanding officer, knowing what it is that he requires and how willing he is to help if we would ask him. Next then in verse 5, Paul tells us that the person who wants to be useful in a city like Ephesus needs to be like an athlete. Once again, this is an image that's really familiar from our Corinthian series. And you remember how Paul urged his readers to follow the example of uh, the athletes that they loved so much back in those days uh, uh, when they went into strict training to be ready for the events that they competed in. But here, just like the soldier analogy, Paul kind of goes left um, and uses the imagery in a completely different way. His focus is not so much on getting into shape now as it is actually on the conduct of the athlete during the race itself. He reminds Timothy that no one who competes as an athlete receives the victor's crown unless they compete according to the rules. Do you see then uh, that just as he did with the soldier analogy, Paul is drawing Timothy's attention to his responsibilities as an ambassador for Jesus. You see, Paul sadly has got a front row seat, hasn't he, to the reality that people who start well serving Jesus do not always end well. In Acts 19, remember, Paul warned the elders of the Ephesian church that from among their own number, men would arise and distort the truths that he taught them. I can't help believing that Hymenaeus and Philetus were on the beach on that occasion. And sure enough, here in 2 Timothy, now we find him having to sound the alarm bells about these guys and their socially acceptable spin on the gospel that was really no gospel at all. Paul writes this final letter to Timothy he desperately doesn't want Timothy to go down that same path but he's also smart enough to realize that it is a possibility isn't he doesn't think that just because Timothy's a nice bloke it's inevitable that somehow he'll just keep walking the straight and narrow Paul knows that for all of his great track record Timothy will be tempted to run out of his lane and find an easier way to the finish line than competing according to the rules and his advice is terribly important for us too For the Trinity team, there will no doubt be significant temptations to change the message of the gospel to avoid the cost that it will inevitably bring. And we need to be realistic about that. We need to defend ourselves against it. We need to make ourselves accountable to other people. Maybe that's a way that we can help each other as churches here. Uh, We need to uh, gather people around us who will pray for this project, who will support us. But this isn't just for Trinity and Oxford. This is for Crossroads. We need to recognise the temptation to find an easier way to the finish line when we're speaking about Jesus with our neighbours and our colleagues. We need to pray for the elders of our church. We need to pray for the people around us here in our seats that we would remain faithful to the message of Jesus that we've been entrusted with. So then finally we reach verse 6. And Paul arrives at the last of his three analogies here, uh, where he tells us that the person who wants to be useful in a city like Ephesus needs to be like a farmer. This one's a bit trickier to understand. 
And like the other two, it's a familiar image from Paul's other letters. Uh, Like the other two, it's back there in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, where Paul uses it to talk about his rights as an apostle. Uh, He says, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't uh, get a share of the milk? The gospel worker has a right to expect financial support as a reward for the work that they do. But the problem with that here is that it just completely doesn't fit the context of the passage. Uh, Paul's not talking about Timothy's rights as a gospel worker. He's laying uh, down to him very clearly his responsibilities in this final letter that he gets the chance to write. And we clearly can't make a case to say that um, you know, Paul's use of the analogies in other letters controls the way we read this one because he clearly uses the soldier and the athlete in a very different way in this text. So what do we do with it? Well, I think Paul himself leaves us a clue. Flip forward with me again to that passage I had you read earlier, chapter 4, verse 6. That famous line where Paul says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. But he doesn't stop there. He then says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Do you see at least the first two analogies from our text appearing here in the same order? I have fought the good fight. That's the soldier. I've finished the race. That's the athlete. And so it makes me wonder whether the last part also might be connected and whether this might not actually give us a clue to what Paul means with all this talk of farmers here in chapter 2. Paul tells us that he had kept the faith. He'd maintained his own belief in the gospel through all the trials that he'd endured. And that's what I think he has in mind for us here in this chapter. When Paul says the hard-working farmer should be the first to share in the crops, just think about the picture that he's got in mind there. The farmer plants the crop, the farmer tends the crop, the farmer harvests the crop, the farmer distributes the crop for the benefit of others. But Paul's concern is that the farmer should get some benefit from it himself. Paul doesn't want this farmer to be so hard-working and so caught up in the business of farming that he forgets to feed himself with the crop that he himself is raising. If the farmer is going to keep the faith, he needs to remember to feed himself on the faith. And that, I think, is Paul's concluding warning to us here at the end of our text. To Peter uh, and to me and the rest of the Trinity team as church planters, Paul's urging us, look, don't be grain farmers on a gluten-free diet, guys. Uh, don't neglect to feed yourselves on the riches uh, that you're passing out to others but to us as a church here too the warning is equally applicable you see it's possible isn't it to go on so long on the christian journey that our passion for the gospel and our activism for the gospel can gradually just become a kind of self-supporting shell around an empty space where really feeding on the gospel should be We can read our Bibles but fail to be changed by them. We can attend church and encourage other people to do the same without being impacted by what we hear or sing really in any way. We can give but not really care about the needs of the people we're supporting. We can preach but not really pray about the impact that the words uh, we're saying have on the people we're reaching. And if we let that happen to us, we will never make an impact on the hopelessness of a city like Oxford or a city like Grand Rapids. To really make a difference with the gospel in our hands, we need to be strong in Christ's strength. We need to stand firm on Christ's message. We need to fight the good fight. We need to finish the race. And we need to keep the faith. Let's pray.
Great God in heaven, we call out to you for uh, the opportunities to serve you that you have placed before each one of us, uh, knowing that, wow, the, the, the warnings that are laid out here in this text are right there in front of us. We find it so easy to be distracted, so easy to just water down the gospel, so easy to be weak where we should be strong, so easy to be ashamed where we should be unashamed, uh, so easy uh, to just be grateful maybe somewhere in the back of the mind for the good things that we've heard that helped us feel good inside, but not really equipped or willing to tell anybody else about them. God, change us. You've called us to be an army, not to be just a, a kind of wet, you know, useless group of people waiting for the second coming. We pray in Jesus' name that you would stir us up and equip us and enable us to be useful with the gospel in our hands. Lord, as we step forward into our future as a church, as we think about going to one building, as we think about uh, bringing people onto staff to lead future church plants, as we think about trying to use some of the energy and blessing that you've given us as a body to bless others and push it outwards, would you enable us to think this way? Help us, God, uh, to be like the Pauls and the Timothys uh, to whom we owe the fact that we even have this message in our hands. For Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. Is this on? Yeah. First of all, this is not goodbye to Neil. Neil's going to be here till January, okay? Let's just get that straight right now. Um, I just kind of cut into the the order here, as Greg would say, I'm getting off the page. I'd like to take an offering right now. Um, our family, uh, to our extended family, Church Oxford. And, um, you know, this church has been so generous. And I like what someone recently said to me. They said the way that they're going to invest their money is in God's mouthpiece. And I like that. Um, and I just feel that that's the opportunity that we have a church as a church right now. Are we going to pray for these guys? Absolutely. Is our, going to heart, is our heart going to be with them? Absolutely. But the way they do church in England is a lot different than we do church here. It is uphill in a culture that's so against Christ and the gospel. And finances are also that way. And so any way that we can bless them today, uh, we are giving to God's mouthpiece um, through Neil and this team. And so if you feel led to give, I'm going to ask the ushers uh, to come forward. Are you guys still here and ready for this? And uh, let's stand and uh, worship him.